Welcome to the Elevating Your Potential podcast, where we enlighten middle school or high school student athletes about the realities of college sports. I'm excited about the guest that we have today. Um, she does a lot of research over a lot of various topics that really don't get discussed a whole lot, or it might be some, um, how do I say, uh, some misperceptions um, about college and about scholarships and different programs associated with that. So she can come, she is the one that can give us some light and uh, shed some light on what um, some of the aspects of college that we're talking about. Um, her name is Dr. Denise Gandara. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Jeremiah. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today. So can you tell the audience a little, about, uh, a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing? Sure. So I am an assistant professor uh, at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. And what that means is I teach classes in a program for master's students who are studying higher education and also for doctoral students who are studying higher education. And most of them want to work in colleges and universities. Most of them actually already work in colleges and universities. So my classes are mostly around educational policy, things like financial aid, which I, I think we'll talk a little bit more about today, um, college affordability. So those are the topics that I teach and I also conduct research on those topics. So I. I do a lot of research with um, statistical analyses, but also I interview uh, policymakers and other people who are involved in making decisions about college that affects students and their families. Perfect, thank you so much. Uh, so going on this, the policy trend that you've uh, started, so we just had a shift um, in the political landscape. And so what are some big trends um, that parents or student and students should be looking out for um, in terms of education that that could impact them moving down the line with this new um, regime that we have in office? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think we will see a lot of policy changes with this new administration. It does seem like there is a, a, a different focus with both the um, the president and the president's administration, but also in Congress, which makes a lot of these decisions too. Um, there's been a shift in the control of the Senate, so we can expect to see some changes there. And some of the big ones are around college affordability. Mm. So I think that we will start to see more interest in this idea of free college, which mm. as you know, is something that I am very interested in. Yes. Um, so, so I think that there is a little bit more momentum now and more interest in having some sort of national free college program. Now, it's not really clear what that will look like. There are so many different options. Um, but overall, there is this interest in at least covering tuition and fees for any student who wants to attend a community college. Okay. It's possible that it will be broader than that. So there's a possibility that students might also be able to attend a four-year university with their tuition and fees covered. But uh, the more likely scenario, I think, is that it will only apply to two-year college or community college. And right now, it it's looking like it will only include public institutions. Okay. So we're in Texas, you know, so it would include uh, universities like the flagships, UT Austin, Texas A&M, but also the regional universities like the ones we have here in Dallas, um, University of Texas at Dallas, University of North Texas. As of now, it doesn't look like it will include our university, uh, Southern Methodist. Right. 
although there are some proposals to include other types of institutions, also private universities. As you know, private universities are generally more expensive, mm -hmm. so their tuition and fee prices are higher than public universities, but they also tend to offer more financial aid. As a university, they tend to offer more financial aid to their students. So that's one of the, the main changes that I see is um, probably a greater probability that we will have some sort of free college program at the national level. Um, there's also been a, a, a policy change to simplify the FAFSA, the, mm -hmm. federal, the free application for federal student aid. And as I'm sure um, many of the people listening to the podcast either have experienced or will experience is applying for financial aid to be able to go to college. And currently it's a pretty complicated process. Um, yes. It's over a hundred pages. Um, if you actually print it out, print out the application, there are just so many questions. And the reason it's designed that way is because they really want to know, the government wants to know as much as they can about you, your family situation, your finances. So it's well intended, but it's really way too complicated unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. So now finally, there's been this move to make it easier for students to apply for financial aid, which I think is a huge um, step in the right direction. Oh, that's so that was already extremely insightful, the information that you're giving. Um, so let's talk about free college first. Um, when people hear the, the term free college, who's all in, who's all encompassed in that term? Is that everyone? Is it those who might have a low socioeconomic status? What, what are those conversations like right now? That's a great question, Jeremiah. It, so just to take a step back, there are lots of free college programs that already exist across the country. So we can look at those programs and try to understand how, how those are designed. And that might give us an idea of what a national free college program might look like. Um, so currently, you know, I'm in Dallas and, and we have the Dallas County Promise Program. And that is for all students. For, for the most part. So students just have to live in Dallas County, graduate from one of a number of high schools in Dallas County. And basically that's it. They're eligible to go to the community college for free. Um, by free, again, I only mean tuition and fees are covered. So there's no additional requirement related to GPA or anything like that related to prior academic achievement. Um, there are other programs, however, that do have other requirements. So um, as you alluded to, for some other programs, you have to be lower income in order to qualify for the program. So usually there's some sort of income cap if you make under a certain amount of money um, in terms of your family income, then you qualify. And if you're above that cap, you don't qualify for free college. I, I would say the majority of programs don't have a uh, an income cap or some other type of eligibility requirement that's related to, to your family finances. For the most part, these programs are available to students as long as they live in a particular place. So like here, it's Dallas County. In other, in other places, you have to graduate from a certain high school or from a certain school district. So there are, um, again, there are actually hundreds of these programs that already exist across the country. So those are some options for the federal government to, to design their program. They could choose to add an income cap so only 
certain students um, who are lower income would qualify, or they might say anybody who wants to go to a public institution in the United States can, can go regardless of their income. So um, I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but why, why would you want to do it that way? The right. reason so many programs don't have any kind of requirement that you're low income is because the, the idea is that if you're going to make college free, you should make it free for all. And that is a more simple, direct message. So this is the argument for people who support um, this more universal design where there isn't any kind of, um, uh, you don't have to be low income to qualify. Mm. So the idea is, it's a simple message. You can go to college for free, regardless of how much money your family makes, regardless of whether you had a high GPA in high school or not. So there are a lot of people who believe that if, if you want, if you're going to say free college, it should be free for everyone. Yeah. So that's, that's the argument. Um, some programs do have a, like I mentioned, a GPA requirement, mm -hmm. or some of them even have an attendance requirement in high school. So you have to have 90% attendance in high school, for example, which to me seems a little high. Yeah. I think those are, I, because there are a lot of reasons why students have to miss school uh, that have nothing to do with their motivation or their ability. You know, but uh, there are some programs that have those requirements. I don't think that a national free college program would include something like that, like a GPA requirement or an attendance requirement. I think there might be some sort of financial criterion, like um, you have to be low income. Um, but I, I suspect there won't be very many other requirements beyond that. Perfect. Perfect. So we've talked about um free college we talked about financial aid a little bit um are there any other resources that our student athletes and parents can really tap into to help themselves pay for college and yeah. not except for outside of loans we'll talk about loans maybe a little bit later but outside of loans are there any grants or scholarship programs that they can tap into that they might not know about at this moment mm -hmm. yeah that's a really important question so the first thing i would say is complete the FAFSA, that free application for federal student aid. Make sure it is the FAFSA. Apparently there are some other companies out there that try to get you to fill out some forms and you have to pay for them. Mm. But the FAFSA is free, the free application for federal student aid. So that's the one you should be filling out. And that's from the federal government. Uh, so that's the first step. And again, it'll be easier now to do that. Uh, so the federal government gives you financial aid, you get more if you have uh, if you're lower income. So if you have fewer resources, you get more money from the federal government. But there are other types of financial aid available that are not loans that you can also qualify for, including um, work study, for example, that also comes from the federal government. And you qualify by filling out the FAFSA so you can uh, have the opportunity to work on campus and get some some funding for doing that. And usually those jobs are pretty flexible and and you get to be on campus. So it's it's easier, I think, to focus on your academics when you have a work study job as opposed to working off campus. So that's usually a good option. Um, states also have financial aid. So here in Texas, we have the um, the largest financial aid program is the tech, it's called the Texas Grants Program. But we also have other types of financial aid. So I, I would also look at uh, the state's financial aid programs and every state has at least one. 
And then, of course, there are private um, scholarships and grants through different organizations and foundations. Some of those are based on what you are interested in studying. So there are some that are specific to students who want to study science, technology, engineering, and math, mm -hmm. for example, or for students who want to be pre-med. Um, so there are some that are specialized based on you want what you want to study. So you could just Google scholarships for a particular area of study. There are others that are based on the student's demographic background. So some that are specific to your race and ethnicity. Uh, when I was in college, I uh, got scholarships from Hispanic scholarship organizations. So there's the Hispanic scholarship fund. There was another one called the Hispanic scholarship consortium. Um, and I think there were a couple more that I'm not remembering, but that might be another option also is to look up scholarships that are related to demographic characteristics mm. of the student. Uh, one thing I'll say is for a lot of those scholarships, they don't get a lot of applicants. And that's something that a lot of people don't know. And they might think, oh, I won't get it. I'm not that competitive for it. But what I'll say is um, give it a shot. You know, it's usually it's not that much time or work that goes into applying for a scholarship. I mean, you do have to write an essay usually. But once you do it for one, you already have it. So you right. can use it for more than one. And um, you might get a couple thousand dollars from it and you might spend a couple of hours for a couple thousand dollars. I think that's a pretty good return mm -hmm. on the investment of yeah. your time. I always encourage students to, to just go for it. And I had one colleague in, when I was in college who, who identified as male, but he, he, um, he applied for a female scholarship. It was specifically for women in a particular field and he just applied for it anyway because he thought it's worth a shot and he ended up getting it wow. because they, did, they didn't have <laughs> enough applicants so i mean i think that's probably rare but it's just sort of a, an extreme example of why it's worth just submitting your application you know just put it out there who knows you might get it and again once you've done the work for one of them it's done you can just use the same materials or very similar materials for other scholarships yeah. so those are just some examples um, and it, yeah, I would just Google either based on what you want to study, based on your demographic characteristics, based on where you live. There are some local scholarships from local community organizations. Um, so there are there there is quite a bit of money out there. Perfect. And it's interesting that we're having this discussion on scholarship dollars and loans and grants. Um, but the I think the larger question is like, why do you think that college is so expensive to begin with? <laughs> why do we have to, why there's so many discussions on how can I afford college, how can I afford college, wouldn't you think that it would be a little bit cheaper? Why do you think it's so expensive? That's a great question because, I mean, it shouldn't be so hard, right, for students mm -hmm. to be able to pay for college. Like all of this advice I'm giving about applying to all these scholarships, it, it really shouldn't be that hard to, to dig up all of the possible sources of funding that exist out there. But the truth is that it is that college has gotten a lot more expensive over time in that tuition prices have increased a lot over time. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that um, for public institutions, so like again here in Texas, let's say UT Austin and Texas A&M, they receive some funding from the state government, right? And the money they get from the state government helps them keep their tuition prices down. 
when they get less money from the government, they have to increase their prices in order to make up for that money they're not getting from the government. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what has happened. So since the last great recession in 2008, uh, because the economy wasn't doing well, governments gave less money to colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. So what colleges and universities did was they increased their tuition prices. So now students are having to pay a greater share of what it costs to go to college because governments are not giving as much support to colleges and universities anymore. But I think what's a little bit complicated and sometimes we don't think about as much is colleges and universities also have bills that they need to pay. Um, and the, those bills have been increasing also. So the expenses that colleges and universities have to incur to pay their faculty, not because faculty get paid a lot of money. We, we really <laughs> that's not really the um, It's actually, so for example, the health insurance that, that colleges and universities have to give faculty, but not only faculty, staff members also, those prices have increased so much, they've skyrocketed uh, over time. So that means that colleges and universities are having to spend a lot more money uh, just to provide those benefits, which, which are required. They have to provide those benefits, and they should, to, to faculty and staff, to the people who work in the institution. So again, as that's happening, and they're getting less money from the government, what they do is they increase their prices in order to be able to cover their expenses. Now, there's also this other side to the story, which is that, as many people have probably noticed, colleges and universities, many of them now offer a lot more amenities than they used to, and that costs money also. It's not all colleges, so I mean, I think about community colleges, and that's not really what we're seeing there, but other types of institutions uh, do now offer more nicer dorms, for example, for students to live in, just nicer facilities overall. Uh, some people point to rock climbing walls in the yep. rec centers, things like that. And the truth is those are becoming more common. They're not the only reason why tuition has increased or even the main reason, but that is part of the story is that many colleges and universities are now offering more uh, luxury, more of a luxury good to, to students in large part because that's what students want. So there are quite a few students who are making decisions about where to go to college based on those sorts of things. Um, so it creates a, a competition between mm -hmm. colleges to provide the most services. And again, that costs money, which ends up meaning that institutions charge more to students to be able to pay for that. So that's the other part of the story. And I'll just say one last thing. No, oh, that's good. <laughs> so with, um, so I will say, yes, college has gotten a lot more expensive, but I think it's it's important for students to not be discouraged by that. And the reason I say that is that even though tuition has increased so much, it's still good value. So we still know that going to college, uh, those who go to college are so much better off than those who don't go to college financially. Um, for the most part. So sure, there are examples of people who can get good jobs without going to college, but that's really the exception rather than the rule. It's still, if you look at the data, which I do, uh, it's still a good return on your investment because it really is an investment. Going to college really is an investment. And what we're seeing, so with COVID-19, most of the people who lost jobs 
are people who didn't have a college degree. And it's the same thing we saw with the Great Recession is most of the jobs that were lost were among people who didn't have a college degree. So even though those with college degrees, some of them also lost jobs. And we heard these horror stories about the barista working at Starbucks who had a college degree or even a, a master's degree in some cases. Those people were still better off than those who didn't have a college degree at all. So if you look at the numbers, it's still worth it. And we know that on average, people are better off going to college than not going to college, um, at least on, on economic terms. Right. So I just wanted to mention that also because sometimes we can just focus on the cost of college without focusing on the benefits of college, mm -hmm. right? So that's just another way to think about it is, is the value of actually investing. Now, all that said, college should be more affordable, 100%. But I also just don't want people to get discouraged from going to college because uh, of the focus on prices. Yes, that your explanation of cost and benefits just took me back to in a, to an assignment we did in class on the whiteboard when we put up the cost and benefits. That that took me back a couple of years. So that I hope was, you don't have PTSD from that. No, no, <laughs> it was good. It was good. It helped me tremendously. Um, so let's take a slight shift from the cost and financial uh, financial aid of. Um, college and let's shift on to, onto the student and specifically underserved students so when you hear that phrase underserved student what does that mean yeah so for me underserved students are students who uh, either have not had access to higher education historically um, so that includes a lot of students of color. So, you know, when colleges and universities were first created, students of color were not uh, attending mm -hmm. colleges and universities. And in some cases, they're still very much underrepresented in colleges and universities, especially more selective ones. It also includes lower income students who, again, historically did not attend college and still are underrepresented in many institutions, especially ones that are harder to get into. Uh, first generation students whose parents didn't go to college. So those are some of the main categories I think of when I think of underserved students are mm -hmm. those students who historically have not been represented in colleges and universities or have been underrepresented. Mm -hmm. But I also think about students who are marginalized once they get to college because their their experiences are just different. They experience discrimination. They feel like they don't belong. So I also think of those students as underserved. And that includes all of the, the groups that I mentioned above, students of color, lower income students, first generation students, but also other student groups like those uh, who identify as LGBTQ um, or trans students, uh, other members of groups that are marginalized more broadly in society uh, and that oftentimes also experience discrimination or marginalization on college campuses. So with that being said, what can you tell maybe a high school student who's listening to you talk about what an underserved student is? And what can you tell the student, a more parent or a coach or anything, anyone who has like an impact on the student's life, how can we help prepare these underserved students for what they're about to transition into in college, whether it be a community college, four year, um, whatever that may be? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I, 
I think it's a little bit difficult because it, it shouldn't be on the student themselves, you know, to, to try to um, chart a good path for themselves. It should really be on, on us who are serving those students to, to make sure that they, that they feel supported, that they feel included, uh, and that we provide an equitable environment for them. I think um, some, some colleges and universities are working hard to make that better. So maybe that's something that you could, that you could tell students that might be encouraging for those students who are underserved in higher education is that there are a lot of people within colleges and universities, administrators, faculty, staff members um, who are, are working hard to do that, to create an environment that's more um, inclusive for them and that, that will support them. So I think, um, I think that's probably what I would say. And uh, the, the other thing just in terms of, of how to how to support students that for me my mantra kind of is with my own students is that we need to treat them as humans first so we just sometimes we can just get so caught up on uh, the student's identity as a student or in the case of student athletes is is a debate is it a, is a student athlete a student first or an athlete first right for me it's it's they're a human first so you have to you have to focus on that. And what I mean by that is you have to treat them with compassion and care and think beyond just what they do in the classroom, what they do on the field, um, because we, we all have other aspects to our life beyond what we do as students or as athletes. And I just think it's so important to recognize that, to, to look at the person fully in their context. Um, and that also means supporting them in all of their interests, everything that they that they want to do beyond just what they're studying or beyond the sport that they're in. Um, so, so I look at you and what you're accomplishing now beyond your career as an athlete. So getting a, a graduate degree and writing a book and now hosting this podcast, I just think it's such a prime example of why it's important to support our students with all of their interests, their wide array of interests. Um, beyond again just what they're studying or or their specific sport yes thank you so much for that by the way um and thank you for um looking at a student holistically um in every aspect of what makes them people and not just the statistic that they see um i'm not trying to contradict any of that but i do want to narrow down just a little bit more <laughs> for that um and obviously i was a black student um, you mentioned earlier how you were um, a Hispanic student as well. And so I want you to speci uh, specifically talk to the um, Hispanic students because we have people come on that's been able to talk about um, white students. Um, we've had black students, but we haven't had anyone specifically talk to our Hispanic students and some of the obstacles that they have to overcome um, for the ap college application process and once they actually reach college as well. So what are some things that they can possibly be looking out for as they're making their journey um, to the next step, which um, we're talking about college here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, so I'm going to think back at what, what my experience was like when I was applying to college. And some of the 
the greatest obstacles, and this won't be true for all students who identify as Hispanic or as Latino, um, but for a lot of students, and there's, there's some research that looks at this, um, if their parents don't speak English, that's certainly a barrier. That was my experience um, when I was applying to college. My, my dad speaks some English. My mom doesn't speak English at all. And they didn't, uh, they immigrated here to the United States. So they weren't familiar with the educational system here, certainly weren't familiar with like the FAFSA, which as mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, is just so complicated. And just all of these processes that we have to navigate to be able to go to college, applying to college, finding all of these scholarships and applying for them, um, figuring out how to fill out this FAFSA form. So those are some of the greatest challenges that, that I think a lot of students, not just Hispanic or Latino students have to deal with, but, but it's also true for, or I, I would say there's another layer of complexity when, when your parents are immigrants and when there's a language barrier too. And that may be across races and ethnicities, not just again for Hispanic or Latino students. Um, usually there are um, counselors and other adults in schools that can help with that. That's not always the case in some cases. In some cases they're better than, than others, I'll say that. Mm -hmm. but, but it's always good to ask. Sometimes it's hard to know what the right questions are to ask, but. But again, just knowing that there is financial aid out there um, and that there are so many options for colleges and universities to apply for. So I, I think it's important to ask, to ask a lot of questions. I know one of the things I did, and I'm not sure why I did this or how I knew to do it, but when I, when I was deciding between whether to go to UT or A&M, A&M had offered me more financial aid than UT. So what I did was I talked to the financial aid counselor at UT and asked if they could match what mm -hmm. A&M was offering me. And again, nobody, I don't remember anyone telling me to do that. I'm not sure why mm -hmm. I did that, but it's something that it's just one of these secrets, you know, that you don't know that's a possibility, but some people do it and they're advantaged because of it. And if you're a first generation student or someone who just doesn't have that kind of guidance, you would never know to do that. So I guess that's something else I would say is just ask if there's additional funding out there. Um, colleges and universities oftentimes will do everything they can to get you to go there. So it's just, it's worth asking. My, my dad has a motto that you don't ask, you don't get. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of use that for, for everything in, in life. It's, it's worth asking, you know, the worst you can get is, is a no, but um, so I think, for Hispanic students um, and other underserved students, there are a lot of informational barriers. There's just a lot out there that we don't know mm -hmm. if we're not familiar with the process. Um, so just asking questions, trying to get that, um, that guidance, starting with, with counselors, and if that doesn't seem to go very far, there are teachers usually in schools. I mean, every teacher went to college. Mm -hmm. So usually there are teachers that can also guide us um, and provide some additional advice. And also once you apply to college, you can talk to those financial aid counselors. You can email them. You can find their phone number and call them and see what they can do for you. Um, so I, I think that would be my advice for, for um, addressing those barriers.
And then once you get to college, um, for me, so I went to, I ended up going to UT Austin. They were able to match what A&M was offering. And what I found most useful about my experience there, because you can experience a lot of challenges as a, a an under a student who's a member of an underserved group once you get to college, but there were so many organizations there that uh, were for other people like me, either my demographic characteristics, my academic interests, honor societies, things like that. So getting plugged in to those different organizations just made a huge difference for my experience. And I ended up having a really positive experience because of it, because I was able to find those little communities that, that provided that that support and that sense of belonging that was really important for me. Yes, I love it. So insightful, so much wisdom um, in those answers for sure. So I have two more questions for you. Um, and so not not all undocumented students are Hispanics. I do want to say that first. Um, but can you talk to our undocumented students who might not feel like there's a path for them to go to college? Is there anything, any advice or wisdom you can give them? Yeah, yeah, there is a path, <laughs> definitely the path. And um, I have to emphasize that because I know for a fact that some counselors tell students who are undocumented that there isn't a path. And I just wanna make it very clear that there is, that they can go to college. Um, and not only that, but in many cases, they can get financial aid to go to college also. It is harder in a lot of cases. So for example, they don't get federal financial aid, like the Pell Grant, which is a large um, financial aid program for students who are low income. If you're undocumented, unfortunately, you don't qualify for that. Although there are people trying to change that. So I'll say that also from a policy um, standpoint, that could change, including under the, the Biden administration. But currently, students who are undocumented can't get financial aid from the federal government. But a lot of state governments do allow students to get financial aid. So here in Texas, if students are undocumented, they can get financial aid. And that's that's really important because I think that sometimes there are, like you said earlier, misconceptions or there's a lot of misinformation about what is actually available and who is eligible. So, so I just want to say that there are more hurdles to overcome, um, but but there is a path for for students who are undocumented and and there are also lots of people out there who who want to support students who are undocumented there are organizations um, one of my former students who also graduated from the master's program started an organization to support students who are undocumented in texas um, it's called m schools and she talks to high school students and others to support them through the college going process. And there are other organizations like that also that do really amazing work to support students who are undocumented. And, and within colleges and universities also, there are faculty members, staff members who, who really care deeply about supporting students who are undocumented. So I just wanna say that there are um, those people out there um, and, and there, is, there is a path. Perfect. Um, for my last question, I want to give a charge to those who are able to vote and change policy and make a difference. So what can parents, major stakeholders and communities like community leaders and activists, um, administrators in a school district, what can they do 
to help change laws and policies around um, college afford affordability or even helping undocumented students? What can they do um, in their communities and in their state to help out with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big question. It's a good one to close with, I think. Um, so there, there are a few different things. One is reaching out to policymakers. So, and that's policymakers at the state level, policymakers at the federal level. As um, constituents, our, our policymakers, our representatives are there to represent us and they expect to hear from us. And so many people don't take advantage of that. So I would just say, you know, don't hesitate to email your legislator. Usually if you go on their website, if you go on the website for your state legislature or for Congress, you can just type in your address and you figure out who your representative is. And there's usually just a form that you can fill out. And you can say, college is getting too expensive. We need to uh, make college more affordable. Or you can say, please support free college. So um, in Texas, there are at least four bills right now that are being proposed. Um, so these are proposed laws to have a free college program for the state of Texas. If you live in Texas, and I know not everyone listening to the podcast does, but that's just what I'm most familiar with. But if you live in Texas, write to your representative, send an email, fill out that form on the website and say, please vote in favor of free college. We really need this. Or um, if there are bills around student debt or other kinds of policies, or just in general, you can say that, that college affordability is something you're really concerned about. And that's important for them to know because that is how they decide how they're going to vote on certain issues. So that's the first thing I would say is just reaching out um, to, to policymakers and, and letting them know that this is something that you're concerned about. And same thing for supporting students who are undocumented. The, the politics around that are so complicated. Some states are trying to give more financial aid to students who are undocumented. Other states are moving away from it. So I think Florida is trying to make it more expensive for students who are undocumented to go to college. Um, so it really depends on where you are and what the political landscape is like. But the most important thing to know, I think, is that uh, your representatives want to hear from you. And that's why they're there. They're there to represent you. So don't hesitate to reach out to them. Um, yeah, so I think I. I'll conclude with that. Oh man, that is that is amazing. This episode has been very enlightening. Um, you brought back a lot of memories, um, but you also gave a lot of information to our students and student athletes. So I think I think they'll be able to use it definitely and help them on their journey. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and I hope everyone listening has a great rest of their week. If I can figure out.